0: Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the book of Luke. We shall be starting in chapter 5, Luke 5. The title for this is that Jesus calls his first disciples, but this is not the first time Jesus' disciples have seen his miracles. This passage starts by saying, On one occasion, and that is a... Euphemistic way of saying that some indeterminate amount of time has happened between the end of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 5, where this miracle takes place is kind of difficult to see where it is put in the life of Jesus. We do know that uh, Peter's involved in this, he's called Simon, Simon Peter. And prior to this, he saw Jesus raise his mother-in-law from sickness unto death. I mean, he was there when Jesus spent all night uh, healing people and casting out demons in Peter's house. And so he was a follower of Jesus, but he wasn't a called disciple. This is the first time when Jesus will actually tell people Leave everything and follow me. Prior to this, there were just hanger-oners sort of people of Jesus. And so this miracle takes place. It says in verse 1, uh, the Lake of Gennesaret. And you say, where's the Lake of Gennesaret? This is the Lake, uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. This is the Sea of Tiberias. It's the big body of water in the northern part of the Jordan Valley uh, it has many names, as many people have seen it and conquered the people around it. It has had many names. It is even referred to in the Old Testament as the Sea of Chenareth. And so it's the same thing. It's a large body of water. It is fed by the Jordan, uh, Jordan River, which comes out of the mountains. And then the Jordan River exits it and goes to the southern part of the Jordan Valley to feed water into the Dead Sea, which has no exit, which is the lowest place on earth that isn't underwater. And from that, it is just very salt infested and nothing lives. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. So in the Sea of Galilee is where this miracle takes place. Now, Jesus is perhaps in town starting. He's starting to teach. And he's teaching uh, about repentance and about who God really is and about his mission. He is giving the gospel, in, in, we might say, and as people are pressing around, they didn't have these sorts of rows of seats that we have today. People were just gathering around Jesus, and as people pushed closer and closer to him, he backed up and backed up and eventually ended up in a boat. Now, it says in verse 1, on that occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God. So Jesus did not have an open Bible. Jesus was not expositoring a passage like we are trying to do today. Instead, he is actually speaking the word of God, the words of God. And so you have people who have never heard this kind of teaching before. They had heard rabbis talk about things that are in the Bible, but somebody actually say things that are the words of God is something that is unknown. And so that's why people by the hundreds, by the thousands, crowded in to see Jesus. And Jesus ends up at the the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two boats. It says... And so he gets in one of them. Now, the fishermen were not in their boats. They were on the shore. It says washing their nets. What that means is they were repairing their nets, these type of nets that they were using. Another name for them is a drag net because it was a very long, rectangular uh, sort of net. And they would take it and they would roll it up and then throw it in the water And hold on to both ends or have one end on each boat. And then they would unfurl it under the water. And then as they pull it, everything that was in the path of this long rectangular net would be caught. And that would also be, uh, you know, it would be rocks and it would be sandals and it would be, you know, uh, starfish and other things that they didn't eat. And so they, these things got caught in the net, and so there's also sharp things under there that would tear the net. And so they were repairing the nets, and they were making the nets ready for the next night of fishing. It had been determined by the Jewish people at that time that the Sea of Galilee, all the, shit, all the uh, fish came to the surface at night to perhaps get the bugs and stuff that came out at night, and so you had a better chance of having a net full of fish if you fished at night, and so Peter says that. He actually explains to Jesus that they have spent all night fishing, and so during the day, probably after some sleeping, that you have to sleep sometime, they would fix the nets and get ready for the next night of fishing. So Jesus gets in the boat of Simon Peter and says, push out. And so they push out, I don't know, five, ten feet from the shore. And this way the people cannot crowd Jesus because they're not going to try to swim to him. And he sits down and teaches. And people say, that's weird. He's sitting down and teaching. But that's how rabbis taught back then. If you attend a synagogue today, you will see the rabbi up front and he will sit down and start teaching. That is the Jewish tradition. It is the uh, Christian tradition. It is the Protestant tradition that those who are teaching the Word of God stand up out of a, a, a respect, if you will, out of a proclamation sort of stance. And so, most of the churches that you attend, 99.9%, you will see the person preaching standing up. That is the tradition of the Christian teaching. So after a while, and it says in verse 3, getting into the one of the boats, which was Simon's, he has to put out a little while, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And then in verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, and so this is something that... Every pastor needs to realize that at some point, you have to finish speaking, that Jesus did have an outline, if you will, mentally. He had a series of truth that he wanted, wanted to express, and he didn't, you know, beat a dead horse, as it were. He didn't just talk and talk and talk ad infinitum about these truths. He presented them simply, completely, and truthfully. And then he was done. And he said when he was done, he tells Simon to put out into deep water, into more of the center of the lake, if you will. And from that point, he says, let your nets down. And Simon Peter says, well, you know, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Okay, so that is not necessarily an excuse It is an explanation to God about what I've gone through. Now, of course, Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. Perhaps he was even there to watch them. But him being knowledgeable of all things, omniscient, he knew their work and he knew their lack of success. And it's quite possible that Jesus had caused their lack of success just to make a point. And so he says that to Jesus and we can't, Put bad motives on that. Uh, It's sometimes necessary for our own peace of mind when we feel God's moving us in a direction that we've already gone without success to explain what we're feeling, to explain what we're experiencing, what we're thinking. Yes, God already knows it, but I think it's good for our psyche to converse with God about what we're going through and not just Grumble. I mean, Peter could have, no, he expressed what he was going through, but he finishes by saying, at your word, I will let down the nets. So he says, I've done it before. I don't think anything's going to happen. This is a no-win situation. There are no fish here, but at your word, I will do it. And so where did Peter get this? At your word, I'm going to do things well. He saw water turned into wine. He saw his mother-in-law healed. And he spent the night with Jesus at his house, seeing Jesus heal all diseases and casting out demons. And so Peter has an understanding that Jesus is capable, that Jesus is able to do stuff. And so he says, I don't know, I can't understand how this is going to work, but I'll do it. And he lays it down and immediately this rectangular net is so full of fish they can barely lift it and they put it in the boat. And some people have said that, well, it's a tiny boat, you know, and it's a little rowboat, but they've they, you have to remember, if you read through the Gospels, there was a miracle where all 12 disciples were in the boat, and Jesus was reclined and sleeping during a storm. So you got 12 people milling around and 13th laying down. These are not tiny boats. During the mid to late 80s, they actually found one that back in Jesus' day, apparently, there was a flood of some kind, and a fishing boat was caught in the mud and covered by mud. And it laid there for 2,000 years in the mud, and they were able to find it and pull it out kind of intact and put it in a museum in Jerusalem so you can actually see a 2,000-year-old boat, and they're not tiny. I mean, they're not ocean liners, but they're not tiny. And so you have a boat that, you know, fill that thing full of fish, and you got another one with James and John, and it's so much fish, so much weight of fish, that this thing is beginning to sink. And so Peter is probably standing there waist high in fish, Probably smelled great. He is sitting there, just fish everywhere, and he is blown away by this. And people have tried to guess, you know, how did Jesus do this? This is just, uh, you know, uh, Christian speculation. You know, what was Jesus doing in this? Some people say, well, Jesus knew where all the fish were and told Peter to lay it down there, and that's true. Jesus knows. Even today, where all the fish in the world are, and he knows what they are doing and what direction they're going. Other people have said that Jesus caused all the fish to swim into the net. Other more bold speculators have said that Jesus just created a new fish in the net. He can do all those things. It doesn't matter how he did it. But this thing was so full of fish that the nets were breaking and the boats were sinking. This is a bunch of, you know, and and Peter and uh, James and John are salesmen of fish. They're professional fishermen. And so this was a a bounty, you know. Peter's probably thinking about he can buy that new donkey, you know, because he has all these fish. And Peter seeing this, says something which is odd. It is something that is not necessarily understood in most people's commentary. They will focus on the fish and they will say that this is, that there's actually two major catches of fish in the New Testament. This is the first one and there is a second one after the resurrection where Jesus tells them to do it. And they do it and get a lot of fish. But Peter says, he falls to his knees and he says, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now if Peter saw the power of God, he would have worshipped. He would have fallen down and worshipped. He would have you know, thought that this was an awesome thing. If Jesus, if if Peter saw the control of nature, like you know, he did with the with the water into wine, you know, that was changing nature. If he saw something like that, then it would have been awestruck. He would have been uh, speechless at what was going on. But Peter saw something which caused him to say, I am sinful. And the only thing in Scripture, Old and New Testament, back from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the only attribute of God that causes people to do that is holiness. Peter saw God's holiness, his separateness, his righteous otherness, that Jesus was not just like Peter, that Jesus was not just one of the guys, that he is holy, that he is separate, that he is God incarnate. And his response is, I'm a sinful man. If you stand before a holy God, your first thought, and it says it throughout Scripture, is guaranteed to be, you are sinful and he is not. You are Unrighteous, he is righteous. You are evil, he is good. The difference between God and us has become so apparent to Peter at this point that he realized he's a sinful man. Now, some people have said, well, for him to say that, he had to have some deep and abiding hidden sin. Some people have speculated that perhaps he was sleeping around, perhaps he had an illegitimate child and that that he felt that Jesus was exposing this. But that's not necessary. Every single human in this world standing before a holy God will have their sin exposed. Now, what sort of sin could Peter have had? Well, like every normal person, he probably didn't love God with his whole heart, with his mind and his strength every second of every day. He probably did a handful of selfish things during the day. He probably had some vindictive thoughts about that other fisherman over there that got all the fish. He probably just was a normal human being that was involved in selfish, difficult days of life, thing and choosing, as we all do from time to time, to not put God first, to not lay everything at the foot of God to make his decisions. He was choosing to do things in his own power, which is a sin, and this becomes exposed. His whole life, our whole life of not putting God first, is exposed when we are in the presence of a holy God. And so when we talk about people being sinful and what it means for Simon Peter and what it means for us to be sinful, we are, because we are descendants of Adam, we are born into sin. We are born with a nature and a propensity to serve ourselves before we serve God. And that is a sin. We have a propensity. We are born with us on the throne of our lives. And whenever as a baby we say, gimme, 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 me, 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 wah, 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 that is our natural way of putting ourselves on the throne of our lives and getting what we want. Now you say, ah, but it's a baby, it doesn't know any different. But it it goes into adulthood for many, many people where they just do whatever they want and they understand that they are the master of their own fate. That is very big today to fully actualize yourself, to live your authentic self. That is to put yourself on the throne of your life. Now, one difficulty with this sort of view is that people... Deny sin today. People say sin doesn't exist. They say that it is part of the bigoted, hateful history of Christianity and religion to invent sin to subjugate the population. That is a very popular view today. Others would say they would judge sin by what is legal and illegal. So they're able to do whatever they want you know, sleep around and, you know, do whatever things they want to do with drugs and alcohol. As long as they're not breaking the law, they say it is not a sin, that it is something that is okay to do if society permits it. And as our society becomes more and more permissive, we used to have a society... You know, yeah, I can go back to the 1950s and definitely to the 1800s where society, the town, would keep people's behavior in check. That somebody could not be too uh, out of control because society, the people, considered it unacceptable. And as our society becomes more open and more secretive at the same time. People, you know, test the waters. They try, you know, stealing something small and then and, and there's no sirens and so they steal something bigger. And they just do whatever they want, whatever makes them feel better about themselves and a lot, a lot of the addictions that we have today are to make people feel better, to avoid the pain. We have several groups that meet here of the AA and the NA and the uh, Al-Anon who are people trying to um, beat the addiction, as it were, to stand for things that are not their addiction. And I have met the leaders and the only reason I let them be here is because the leaders are saved, they are born-again Christians, and the message that is given, the strength to beat your addiction is given, is Jesus Christ. But it is society who says, you know, you can do whatever you want as long as it is not illegal. And so as a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit in me, I have the righteousness of God, on me and I have the righteousness of God in me. Am I perfect? No. Am I not sinful anymore? No, that's not how it works. I have the Holy Spirit in me which allows me to make righteous choices. So if I am unsaved, I am in the kingdom of darkness, I am on Satan's team. And while I am unsaved, the only choices I can make are sinful, are self-serving, are things that Satan would like me to do. Once I become a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit in me and I now have a choice. I can now, when I look at a situation, I can rationally and truthfully figure out what God would have me do through his word, through prayer, and I can choose God's way. And so when you get into places like Ephesians and the book of Romans, it talks about walking by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Because as a Christian, I can choose sin or righteousness. I can choose good or evil. And the Bible is here to instruct us to choose good more often than evil. Now, none of us are perfect, even though we're told to be that way. We're still working on it. There is still sin in our lives. We still have random thoughts that this, it would be nice if this person was hurt or something like that, and that is a sinful thought. That is a sin, and so we realize it, we understand it, and we bring it before God. We can lay it down at the cross at our place in history and get the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so we can do all manner of evil. And when you talk about society, a lot of the really bad people that are out there, and when I was writing this, the the baddest person out there right now is Putin. Putin. You say, well, how did Putin get that way? Well, I've 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 listened to the radio where they talk about the atrocities of the Russian army and they say, how can anybody do that? And I raise my hand, I say, I know, I know, I know, but the radio won't listen to me. So these are unchecked sinful people. These are people who have been, many of them, trained in doing sinful acts by their government and you have at the head of it all, Putin, who is totally self-serving and has unchecked evil. Everybody, everybody looks at what is going on in Ukraine and says, that's bad. Okay? There are degrees at which some people say it's evil and needs to be stopped, but it's generally agreed. The whole world seems to be against Russia at this point in time. But we stand back and wring our hands because we can't stop him. Because it is understood, and I think it's understood by our government, to stop him means we have to be as bad as he is. That we have to use the same tactics that he does. Now, it's difficult. I'm sure that the people who manage the military are in, in you know, dark rooms discussing what they can do without technically going to war. I was in the military in the 80s in which we talked about going to war with Russia all the time. And it seemed to stop, and now we're talking about going to the war with Russia again. And it's difficult. It's difficult when you have an out-of-control, unaccountable person with a lot of money and a lot of power. And their sinfulness, their evilness, is unchecked. They can, he can literally do whatever he wants in that part of the world, and nobody seems to be able to stand up and stop him. And millions, hundreds of millions, maybe a billion people, if put in the same situation, with no accountability, unlimited funds, and an army, would do the same thing. We all have the capacity for great and horrendous evil that is in our system, in our flesh. As a Christian, we now know that it's bad and we can put a lid on it. And we can hopefully live in a society where there are views that help us put a lid on it, but totally out of control people, and there's a handful of them. In the world today, you got North Korea, you got China, you got Russia, of out of control dictators who have no check on their sin. And the world doesn't know what to do about it because, on one hand, the world says there is no sin. And if there is no sin, we have no reason for why they're doing this, but yet they are still doing this. So, after this is after they get all the fish, all the fish to the shore. And uh, Jesus says, Do not be afraid. Okay? Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And they, when they had brought all their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And so that's why this is called the call of the first disciple. There was just hanger on people. But Jesus has said, Full time disciple. You're going to be a full time disciple. And this millions of dollars in fish that they had uh, caught and brought, they just left it. They just walked away from all that wealth, from all that prestige to follow Jesus. And we can point to this that that is what Jesus is calling Christians to to leave everything behind that could be more important. Than Jesus, to leave everything behind that draws us into the world, to leave everything behind that puts us on the throne of our lives, and to follow Jesus in everything we do. And the more we do that, the closer we follow Christ, then the sin nature shrinks a little bit, shrinks a little bit, and the spirit grows a little bit, And the plan is, the longer you've been a Christian, you'll be able to look at yourself and look at your history and say, yeah, I'm following the Spirit more often than not, I guess is something that we can say. Uh, It's kind of difficult to, to numerically count those things, but you can get a sense. Are you really living for Christ or are you not? The choices between our sinfulness, which we all have, and the Spirit of God which is leading us toward Him. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the fact that you do not just leave us to wallow in our own sin, but you sent your Son to die on a cross that we may have full, total, and absolute forgiveness and that we may also have a way a path to follow you. Lord, I praise you for that and ask your blessing on the remainder of the day. We ask all this through the blood of Christ. Amen.